And the question is whether or not we can start to drive more and more aggressive emissions reductions and whether we can get the policy actions domestically that really get individual countries and eventually globally for our emissions to, to peak and then start to go down. Because uh, otherwise, uh, we're going to have to think about quite different approaches to climate change than cutting emissions. Welcome to Environmental Insights, a new podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens, a professor here at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. Today, we're very fortunate to have with us Joseph Aldi, a professor of the practice of public policy at the Kennedy School, a university fellow at Resources for the Future, and a faculty research fellow at the National Bureau of Economic Research. At Harvard, he's also the faculty chair of the Regulatory Policy Program in the Mosavar Ahmani Center for Business and Government. Joe's research focuses on climate change policy, energy policy, and regulatory policy. And from 2009 to 2010, he served as a special assistant to the president for energy and environment at the White House. Welcome, Joe. Thank you, Rob. It's a real pleasure to be here. It's great to have you with us. Now, we've, before we talk about your current research and thinking about climate change, economics, and policy, I'd like to go back to how you came to be where you are and where you've been. And when I say go back, I mean way back. So let's start. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Lexington, Kentucky on a farm just outside of the town. So what was that like? Tell me about that, growing up on a farm. Well, uh it was an interesting farm for that part of the, uh, the country because uh, we had about 20 acres and had black Angus cattle uh-huh. uh, in what is otherwise known as horse country. And then where'd you go to primary school? Uh, so being that this is Kentucky, we called it Athens. Okay. Uh, and it was a small public school, uh, a rural school there on the outskirts of Lexington. Uh, and then I did my middle school at the Lexington School, uh, which is a small private day school mm-hmm. in town. Uh, and graduated from Tate's Creek High School, a public school in Lexington. And then you directly, right after high school, you went directly on to college? I went, I went to Duke for college, and, and that's where I really started to focus on the environment. Although I, I will note uh, that I uh, won a competition, a poster competition in first grade for the old America the Beautiful campaign, which was trying oh, yeah. to combat littering at the time. So right. I, was, I right. was into environmental issues at a very young age. Now, were you, did you study environment or economics or neither or both? In college. So in college at, at Duke, I was the very last student to be able to propose an environmental studies self-designed curriculum. After that, they created uh-huh. an environmental studies major, uh, but I was able to craft something that was, for the most part, applied sciences. In fact, I called it water resources, and I only had, uh, as an undergrad, three economics courses. And then so you graduated from Duke with the undergraduate degree in what year? Uh, 93. And then what did you do after that? I did a master's at the Nicholas School of the Environment. Immediately. Immediately. And that's where I focused on uh, in the resource economics and policy program. Okay. And from there, I went into what's now known as the Presidential Management Fellows Program uh, to work in the federal government. And where did you work in the federal government in that program? Uh, I first worked at uh, the USDA Economic Research Service and their Environmental Resources Division. And as a part of the PMF program, it's quite common for new hires to rotate somewhere else in government. 
I went to the Council of Economic Advisors in 1997 for what was supposed to be a six-month uh, uh, rotation that wound up lasting three years. A fortuitous move. I, I went there at a time in which uh, the chair and the members of CEA did not have to worry about many of the economic issues future chairs did. Uh, the unemployment rate was under 4%. The economy was booming. We actually had a thing called a balanced budget. And they spent a lot of time getting ready for this major UN conference that was going to be held in Kyoto in December of 97 focused on climate change. So it was and then a great you, opportunity to work there then. And then you went to Kyoto with the team. Is that right? I felt like I went to Kyoto because I still got jet lag, but I didn't actually go. Oh, you didn't go. So I, I was up in the middle of the night doing analysis every night in oh, D.C. while they were in the day okay. doing uh, the negotiations. Um, I made the mistake in November of that year when my chief of staff said, should I go to Kyoto and do some of the analysis to support the team? And I said, I'd the way the negotiations are going, I don't think there's going to be a deal. I don't think it's a good use of my time. And after being up six, seven nights in a row throughout the night doing analysis, I regretted not actually being local doing right, the analysis right. during the day, but instead doing it at night in D.C. Now, so you left the administration and CEA in what year did you finish uh, In uh, I left the summer of 2000 to begin my Ph.D. in economics uh, up here at Harvard. Okay. And so tell us about that, that experience at, at Harvard. I mean, so what did, what did you focus in? What were your – you had to do a couple of fields. So I, I focused in part because of my – when I did my master's training at Duke, I had done the Ph.D. in environmental economics course. So when I came up here to Harvard – I decided to focus on my fields of public economics and industrial organization. So they were most oriented to me on how to think about the design of public policy and how do we think especially about way, the way businesses and firms react, how they perform in markets, sometimes in response to public policy. So it was a nice way to draw from these tools from these two major fields for me to then tackle questions in the energy and environmental space. And it was during that time when you were a graduate student that you began to work with Kip Viscusi, who was then at Harvard Law School, on this work that's heavily cited and most of our listeners are familiar with, namely in terms of looking at VSL and how it correlates with age. Right. So it's, it's one of those things that from my time working in government, uh, how we value reductions of mortality risk is the single biggest ticket item when we look at the benefits of environmental regulations or even regulations among the federal regulatory program. And there was a lot of debate in the late 1990s, but not much good empirical work about how the value of statistical life varies over the life cycle. So that's something where working with KIPP, I drew from that policy world experience about what makes, I think, an interesting research question and where are there holes in the literature to tackle that as part of my dissertation research. Now, the non-economists who are listening are going to wonder about that phrase, value of statistical life. Can you explain that? Well, uh, among the that audience may include my mom, who wondered what I was doing saying, here's the value of life in my dissertation research. She so was, give us the mom she explanation. Was a bit, she was a bit puzzled by that. So, so what we do is we say there are policy contexts where people may get exposed to a little bit less pollution. So there's a small change in the chance they're going to die. But people can't go to the corner drugstore to buy a reduction in mortality risk or go to Amazon and buy a reduction in mortality risk. So instead, as economists, we try to identify everyday situations where people reveal their preferences between mm -hmm. a small reduction in the chance of dying and, say, giving up some money. And so some examples of that might be someone goes to a car dealership to buy a new car and they pay a little bit more for a safer car. Or a lot of the work that I did with KIPP, we would look at people's decisions in labor markets. And we'd mm -hmm. look at how much people are getting compensated more 
for bearing a higher chance of being injured or a higher chance of dying on the job. And, and it turns out that the kinds of context, whether it's automobile safety or occupational safety, they're fairly similar magnitudes of risk reduction mm -hmm. to what we see, say, from an EPA regulation or maybe a Department of Transportation regulation or a Department of Labor regulation on, on uh, the work environment. So, so we take those real-world examples where people make decisions sort of in their everyday lives and say, here's how much I estimate looking at their decisions of how they're trading off some income and the chance of dying. And we can then transfer that into evaluating public policy, like mm -hmm. reducing people's exposure to air pollution. Now, while you were at Harvard, was that five years? Yes. Five years, um, which at the time was the norm. I, now the norm has become six years. It keeps on getting longer and longer. But in any event... But grad school can be fun. Yes, of course, uh, certainly. Um, in any event... While you were here, did you also begin to get into climate change uh, in terms of thinking about it, studying it, anything like so, that? So, you know, certainly that was from my time working at the Council of Economic Advisors. I, I learned that climate change was this incredibly rich, fascinating problem from the academic standpoint, mm -hmm. from the research standpoint, as well as being a really difficult public policy problem. And so uh, I began thinking about some work about how do you how do you design an international climate agreement? And in fact, you know, we started working some with our colleague mm -hmm. Scott Barrett at Columbia, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. thinking about what might be a more effective way to tackle climate change uh, compared to what had been negotiated in the Kyoto Conference in 1997. What um, might be a kind of structure that might actually induce the United States to want to participate in international right. climate policy, which under the Bush administration they had basically decided not to do uh, under Kyoto. Another highly cited paper, actually, uh, as I recall. 13 plus 1, yes. Yes, great title. Uh, <laughs> So, uh, so that was our, our effort to try to look at the different proposals out there mm -hmm. made by academics and evaluate them. And, and we identified that at that time 13 different proposals mm -hmm. as alternatives to the one that had been used so far in practice, the Kyoto Protocol. And uh, as I, I recall that on many of the dimensions academics focus on, their proposal dominated Kyoto. But the one thing that we did acknowledge in our paper is that there was a kind of political revealed preference and that mm -hmm. Kyoto had been adopted at a major UN negotiation right. and had eventually been uh, ratified sufficiently to enter into force, which the proposal I had co-authored, the proposal you had co-authored, mm -hmm. co has, had not in its form, at least back then, been uh, agreed to in the international right, negotiations. Right. Now, you graduated from Harvard with a PhD in economics in what year? 2005. 2005. Then you went off to Resources for the Future, the think tank in Washington. Again, most of our listeners are probably familiar with it, but not everyone. Could you just say a couple of words about, you know, what a think tank like Resources for the Future does? So I think there's a couple of distinctive characteristics about RFF, Resources for the Future. First is that it is almost uh, completely comprised of Ph.D. scholars doing research that is trying to do, achieve two purposes, push the academic frontier and inform ongoing policy debates. In fact, I, I think about RFF as being like an academic department, but instead of teaching students, you're teaching policymakers in Washington or in Brussels or at state capitals. That, that, that is the audience for your research in a way that we think about how our research may translate into informing our teaching of students. And it's a key thing about RFF is that they do not, as an institution, take policy positions. Mm -hmm. They're trying to inform the debate. They don't know what the right political and policy answer is, but they do believe strongly that rigorous evidence can inform the quality of the policy debate. 
And then you remained at RFF as a fellow for how long? How long was that? Uh, I stayed there until I took a leave beginning at the end of uh, 2008 when I joined the presidential transition team uh, for President-elect Obama. So you were working in the presidential transition team after Obama was elected. And then there's sort of an unusual set of circumstances. My recollection is, is that you had an offer to join the faculty um, to become my colleague here at the Harvard Kennedy School. You said yes, and then you immediately took a leave of absence. Do I have the, the timing right on that? So, so in the same week, uh, David Elwood, uh, then our dean here at the Kennedy School, offered me an assistant professor position. And then Larry Summers, uh, who had already been uh, selected to be the director of the National Economic Council, had offered me a position to work for both him at NEC in the White House and for Carol Browner at the Office of Energy and Climate Change. And fortunately, David Elwood, who had worked in the 1992-93 transition and worked as a political appointee the first couple of years of the Clinton administration, recognized the opportunity I had before me and was quite uh, generous in allowing me to take a public service leave mm -hmm. uh, before my first day on campus as an assistant professor. And then you returned here and joined the faculty full time. I, I worked the first exact, exactly first 23 months of the Obama administration uh -huh. and joined the faculty here in January right. of 2011. So of those 23 months, I'm sure there were, you know, a lot of challenges and also a lot of rewards. Let's start with the challenges. Thinking back now, what's probably the most challenging aspect of that job, as you recall it? The most challenging aspect of that job is recognizing that your to-do list at 7.30 or 8 in the morning uh, may get uh, wiped out by something unexpected that happens that day. Mm -hmm. And Can you think of an example of when that happened? Uh, the By far the most consequential example, that is the oil spill, yes. the BP Deepwater Horizon oil spill. So I, I remember the morning... The, 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 the rig caught on fire and exploded on that, I believe it was a Tuesday night. It was before 8 a.m. on that Wednesday morning. I had a call on my, um, we're dating ourselves, on my BlackBerry. Mm -hmm. And it was from someone who I knew fairly well from the Washington office of BP. Uh, and he wanted to inform me that they had had a major accident the night before, that they still had some missing uh, rig workers and noted that this would be coming through the White House to the NSC, but he wanted me to communicate this to to um, my bosses and, and other individuals in the White House. And, and I recognized then that like this was a really big deal. And uh, it, it was something where it affected everything from what we would do on regulatory policy. We had some things where we wanted to improve uh, the way we regulate offshore drilling with existing authorities. We worked on two different pieces of legislation uh, uh, with Congress that summer focus on this. At the same time, still trying to juggle working with the Senate on cap-and-trade legislation to deal with climate change, uh, working with countries around the world on international climate policy mm -hmm. that was in my portfolio as we were trying to build on what leaders had agreed to in Copenhagen in December mm -hmm. of 2009 in the run-up to the Cancun climate talks in, in, at the end of 2010. Um, still doing work where I'm trying to figure out how we get the agencies to move out more of the Recovery Act dollars focused on clean energy. So you're... The thing is, something big like that can happen, and you still have to do all the other stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's the biggest challenge is that like something like that can come up, or there's other sort of smaller examples that a regulatory agency may decide to do something that was unexpected, or right. a court may make a decision that was unexpected. 
so it's, it's the kind of surprises that cause you to have to sort of juggle your work, um, and but still the the bosses expect all the work to get done. Now, you mentioned something about the Senate climate legislation. So I assume you're referring to as the Waxman-Markey legislation that was voted through in the House in a largely partisan vote and then never really got a vote in the Senate. As you look back on it now, is there anything that you would have done differently or more to the point if you had had the authority to get the administration to do it differently so that there might have been a positive outcome in the Senate rather than the lack of an outcome? So there's a fundamental challenge when we look back at um, all the legislation that moved in 2009 and 2010. And the, the history of the Senate is kind of awkward because we had the number of Democrats in the caucus changed several times over the course of that time. So you had Senator Franken actually wasn't elected senator until a good four or five months into the year. There was there was a recount and all this going on in his home state. Um, you had uh, you know Senator Kennedy passing away that affected the count in the, in the caucus. Uh, we had one Republican changeover parties uh, in 2009 as well. But the challenge was recognizing how do you get to at least 60 votes on a piece of legislation when the Republicans are not voting on any of our major pieces of legislation? They didn't vote on the Recovery Act. I mean, there, there, there was certainly a bipartisan recognition we needed a major economic stimulus package. They didn't like the way we crafted the package. So they weren't going to vote on that. They weren't going to vote on health care. They weren't going to vote on financial regulation under Dodd-Frank. And you know, the, the task is when you see about how to move climate legislation, it, it really feels partisan, but there's still some regional issues that matter as well, uh, that you had Democratic senators from Midwestern manufacturing states that are very concerned about what this would do to energy prices mm-hmm. that for their ma- big manufacturing industries. Uh, you had Senator Manchin from West Virginia uh, who, who had recently been elected and was, you know, quite concerned about uh, the potential um, uh, that this policy would have for, for his state. Uh, so so there, there, there's this challenge of how do you go get to 60 votes in the Senate? And I think that is one of the lessons that when we hear presidential candidates uh, running on the Democratic side today, they're talking about getting rid of the filibuster. Mm-hmm. They know that 60 votes is mm-hmm. a really high hurdle right now uh, uh, to reach. So, so it's difficult to go back and say in a world in which Senator McConnell was keeping his caucus you know, quite tied to not voting on anything that seemed like a priority for President Obama to say, what would we have done differently? It's uh, maybe it's you craft a piece of legislation that you either get your side to say, we're not going to do the filibuster anymore in the Senate or something that you work through some of the very special vehicles in the Senate, like budget reconciliation, mm-hmm. which was mm-hmm. the, the the mechanism by which recently the um, Republicans moved tax reform in 2017, right. where you don't have to get 60 votes. You just need 51 in the right. Senate. So it sounds like there really wasn't anything that could have happened short of fundamental changes in terms of the makeup of the Senate. Um, Is that fair to say? Yeah. I mean, we, we had we had senator Republican senators who in the past had proposed cap-and-trade legislation. Right. But they weren't there in 2009 and 2010. You know, we had Senator right. McCain who'd been pushing le- legislation going back to 2003. Right. He ran on it in his presidential campaign. But then he was primaried and made But he was primaried. Yeah. Or you look at someone like Senator Murkowski, who's actually quite thoughtful yep. on these issues, mm-hmm. who lost her primary right. in 2010 right. and amazingly yes. won as a write-in candidate in the general election in 2010 to keep her Senate seat. So when you think about the potential partners on the other side of the aisle um, – you know, there's a story for each one of them about why they weren't 
there. Uh, but in the end, you know, we never had in the work, whether it was in the Environment and Public Works Committee or when Senators Kerry and Lieberman, tried to, they tried to do some work. They tried to work some with Senator Graham, but in the end, he wasn't there to help support uh, any kind of energy and climate legislation. So we'll come back to policy and to climate change policy, but I want to turn to your research. So you, you've carried out a wide range of research beyond climate change policy. We were already talking about your work on VSL with Kip Viscusi. If you had, I know this is like asking which is your favorite child, but nevertheless, I'll ask the question. If you had to choose one bit of research, either that you've done or you're currently engaged in for that matter, mm-hmm. that you're most proud of, just the, the one, what, what would it be? I like the paper uh, that Kip and I did, uh, the first one that estimated how the value of statistical life varies over the life cycle mm-hmm. from, from workers' uh, decisions. And, and part of that, I think, is because uh, we had previously reviewed um, the literature for a, a 2003 paper. And one thing we found is that it was kind of an afterthought in, in a number of papers. There were probably seven or eight papers that had said, well, let's just sort of do a little bit of this. And, they, and, and what you found was that uh, you, you really needed to think about this a lot more critically. Um, you, uh, that, that how the previous papers had done it, they had put way too much structure on the problem, if you will. And, and as a result, you get these re- sort of bizarre results, which suggest that by the time you're 55 or 60, um, your willingness to pay to reduce mortality risk is negative, which is counterintuitive. And it's not just that it's counterintuitive, it just suggests that there's a the, the statistical models weren't doing justice to the decisions being made and, and, and weren't doing justice to, to what's really the key factors driving those decisions. So, so I think we were able to do something that was a, a sort of a nice application of a couple of, of econometric methods, one of which I learned from Gary Chamberlain in the economics department mm-hmm. in, in a, an econometric selective I took. So it was fun applying a new tool. Uh, but it also s- did something that, to be honest, we had not seen in the revealed preference literature on the value of statistical life. We'd seen some of it in the – there's a survey-based literature, mm-hmm. and we'd certainly seen this in some of the uh, applied theory literature. Uh, but we really did something that, that we hadn't seen before, and it was sort of nice going from evaluating a literature, crafting a question, bringing in some new tools – to be able to say something that we hadn't been able to say before in the literature. That's also really important when we think about the potential policy implications. So, so I, I, I guess I would say um, that that's, that's at least one of my favorite kids. So let, let, I'm going to get back to policy. Um, you know, you've worked both in domestic climate change policy and in the international dimensions of climate change policy. Um, I'm interested in in talking with you just for a moment about the current administration's climate change policy or lack thereof, however mm-hmm. one however one views it. Um, the Republicans who I know best, um, partly by historical coincidence when I worked in the with the George H. W. Bush administration, but partly by selection, they tend to be the mo- so moderate Republicans, which mm-hmm. some people would say nowadays is almost an oxymoron. Do, do you see that there's a future for climate change policy at the congressional level in the U.S.? Is the only route forward, given what you said before, getting 60-plus votes or changing the voting rules mm-hmm. in the Senate? Or is there the possibility going forward of moving back to what we had, even in 1990 Cleaner Act amendments, right. and that's a bipartisan coalition? Do you see that as a possibility, or are you thinking more in terms of Democrats doing it on their own, either by changing the rules or by getting a supermajority. So I, I think a couple of things need to change in order for us to try to return to something which 
I think the Clean Air Act amendments of 1990 had about 90 or so senators vote for it. As I recall, 92% of Democrats and about 87% of right. Republicans. Uh, I don't even think you can get that many to vote for a post office naming bill mm-hmm. today in, in the U.S. Senate. I think uh, to date, Republicans have not, for the most part, faced any cost for their indifference or opposition uh, to climate change policy. And until there are um, members of Congress or senators who fear that uh, by being silent on the issue or actively opposing taking action to combat climate change, until they see real political cost uh, at the polls, I think it's hard to imagine there being a bipartisan future. It's, um, it's possible when we look at stratified by age, it's possible that some of them see a future where if they're not at least trying to do something affirmative in dealing with the climate change problem, that they're going to lose so much of the younger generation or younger generation or two uh, uh, when they go to the polls that, that, that they may start to change their tune. But I think that's, that's the challenge is I, is I don't think they see the political cost. I think from a fundraising standpoint, which matters a lot for politicians, they can see some benefit from being either indifferent or opposing climate change policy. Uh, and to be honest, part of it's also going to depend on where the Democratic Party goes on this, right? So the question is, 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 the, is, the, is the future Democratic Party, whether it's controlling, if, they, if there's a, a control of the Senate in the future or in the White House, are they going to attack to the middle to try to get a broad coalition? Or do we see a really progressive left-wing move on Green New Deal that makes it that much harder, I think, to attract what few moderate Republicans are left. So I think part of it also depends on, on the strategy of Democrats. Uh, but it's, it's, you know, the one, one thing I recall from working for President Obama, first he said, I'm going to do cap and trade and couldn't get Republicans on, on board. And in 2011, uh, he came out for a national clean energy standard that was actually patterned on a bill, a so-called diverse energy standard, that three Republican senators had supported in 2010. But they didn't support it once President Obama supported it in 2011. And then in the 2012 election, there were people asking, would President Obama support a carbon tax? In fact, I was working on the reelect, and I was asked several times as a representative of the campaign about that. I said, let's be honest. The president's out there wanting to do something about climate change. Republicans first said cap and trade. He said, I'll do that. And they weren't there. He then said, you know, I understand Republicans like a clean energy standard. I'll do that. And then they disappeared. So to say, you know, would Democrats support a carbon tax? Maybe, but at some point we need to see what the Republicans are willing to support. Mm-hmm. And I just don't see many of them stepping forward, uh, given the nature, the, given how they do their political calculus today. Now, we don't have a, t- a lot of time left, so let me try to draw us to the international domain mm-hmm. where you've also done a lot of work. Early on, you mentioned the Kyoto Protocol and looking at alternatives to the Kyoto Protocol. What's your assessment uh, of the Paris Climate Agreement? Um, some people are very enthusiastic about it. Others, I, I know, are very skeptical about the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, what's your view? I think Paris has a lot of potential. I think it's challenging, though, when you see the United States that had been, a, I think, a real leader getting countries to step up in the run-up to the Paris talks, to basically step away during the Trump administration from these issues. Uh, it says something that we have every country in the world or virtually every country in the world pledging to do something to reduce their emissions. Mm-hmm. I think that is a great first step. Uh, it is the, 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 the structure of Paris is what we in, in the research circles call pledge and review. 
I think the review is going to be very important mm-hmm. to be able to assess our countries delivering on what they pledge to do, mm-hmm. and are they really implementing meaningful domestic programs to reduce their emissions. We don't want countries meeting their goals just by accident, just because their economy doesn't do well, or uh, or like for example, in the United States. We had some innovation in natural gas that helped drive down our emissions a lot. We want to see really thoughtful mm-hmm. domestic policy programs, and we want to learn from those, replicate the policies that I think work well, so that can then serve as the foundation for countries taking on much more ambitious action as we go through each round of this pledging. So I, I think there's certainly potential in the Paris framework. I think it is by far the most inclusive approach. I mean, we can go back. In 1992, in the Framework Convention, Industrialized countries said we're going to cut our emissions to 1990 levels by the year 2000. If we look on the aggregate among all those countries, they met that goal. Mm-hmm. Kyoto had an aggregate goal for industrialized countries to reduce their emissions 5% below 1990 levels over 2008 to 2012. Despite the U.S. not ratifying, despite Canada pulling out, in aggregate across all the countries, they met the goals. And yet by 2012, global CO2 emissions are almost 60% higher than they were in 1990. So we know we needed a system that would really bring in all the emerging and developing countries, and Paris does that. And the question is whether or not we can start to drive more and more aggressive emissions reductions and whether we can get the, the policy actions domestically that really you know, get individual countries and eventually globally for our emissions to, to peak and then start to go down. Because otherwise, uh, we're going to have to think about quite different approaches to climate change than cutting emissions. So thinking about different approaches, the last question I want to ask you is, what do you make of these youth movements in of real climate activism? Mm-hmm. We see it both in Europe, we see it in the United States. What's your reaction to that? I think it's fantastic. Why? I think it, it's, it's elevated the debate. Uh, I don't think we have climate change as a, what I think is truly a first-tier policy debate, whether it's in Congress, uh, whether it's in the presidential campaign. Um, without discussion of the Green New Deal, without the Sunrise Movement. I don't know how they did it, but getting CNN to say we're going to devote seven hours of programming to listening to presidential candidates talk about climate change. I could not have imagined that in 2016 or 2012 or any election year uh, previously. So so I, I think they have elevated the debate uh, so that families around the country are actually talking about this in a way that they hadn't before. And that politicians who used to be able to ignore it, I I think it's making it harder and harder for them to ignore it. So I I think it's opening up uh, Mm -hmm. this debate in a a really important way. Um, And the question is whether or not we can sort of galvanize on that energy and craft uh, both a political coalition and, and I think thoughtful policies to really change the direction we're going in terms of our emissions. Joe Aldi, thank you very much for taking time to be with us today. Our guest has been Joseph Aldi, Professor of the Practice of Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. Please join us again for the next episode of Environmental Insights, Conversations on Policy and Practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stevens. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.hks.harvard.edu.